Welcome to the Unconference Podcast. This season, we're taking you to the live stage of the Design Plus Diversity Conference to hear from our selected experts as they tackle the diversity issues in our design community. I'm your host, Tim Hikes, and this is Season 2. Hey guys, I am super excited about this season of the Unconference Podcast by Design Plus Diversity because we are doing something a little bit different than what we would normally do. Typically, we would do one-on-one interviews or maybe bring a couple other people to do group interviews with people so that you can learn more about what people are doing to diversify the design industry. But what we're doing this season is we're giving you this special look at the stage. We're bringing presentations from the main stage and giving it to you in a podcast form where you can hear what was presented on stage, especially if you didn't have the opportunity to tune in or participate in the conference. I do want to note that we are putting this information up in several places so you can go to our YouTube page to see the full presentations there. It's going to have the presentation, the speaker is going to have more information about the speaker and that presentation in the description. But most importantly, you're having the video form. You'll be able to see the presentation. You'll be able to see the speakers, see what they're looking like. You can see the different things that they're presenting because they might be talking about color. And that's something that's on the screen. So we want to make sure that you have access to all this wealth of information. But we know you can take this anywhere. And if you want to double up and see the actual presentation, you can head over to YouTube to see it there. So this is enough. You have enough information to get you there. If you want to know more about our YouTube page, it's Design Plus Diversity on YouTube. That's Design Plus P-L-U-S. We have to spell it out. Diversity on YouTube. And you should be able to find us to see the presentation. But without further ado, I'm going to shut up so that you can get directly to the main content. I hope you enjoy. It's Sherry Byrne Haber, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about accessibility. And so... um, I will not reveal her talk, but what I will do is give you a little intro as to who she is. Sherry is a prominent global subject matter expert on the subject of disability and accessibility in business and in educational settings. She is best known for launching digital accessibility programs at multiple Fortune 200 companies, including McDonald's, Albertsons, Vimware, and, excuse me, Vim. Where and consulting on government accessibility. Her programs have been positively, positively impacted uh, millions of, of more than one million global people with disabilities. That's a lot of people, y'all. Um, Sherry's award-winning medium blog post, a blog summarizes legal causes and, and issues facing both people with disabilities and organizations implementing accessibility programs. Her blog has over 200,000 readers since its launch. Sherry is, frequent, is a frequent panelist and speaker at accessibility-related conferences and an active member of several accessibility committees and nonprofits, helping drive and communicate the evolution of accessibility standards. Please welcome Sherry Bernhaber to our virtual stage. I'm Sherry Bernhaber. I'm here to talk to you about accessibility and the importance of accessibility to your disabled customers, which is a much larger piece of your audience than you might think. And it takes somebody with a disability eight seconds to determine whether or not your website or your ordering process is going to work uh, for them and their disability. And so I'm going to take you through uh, what a disabled individual does to make that snap determination. And 
you know, if they figure that it's not accessible and not going to work for them, uh, how they make that determination to move on to one of your more uh, accessible competitors. So first of all, who am I and why should you listen to me about this? Um, I have a multidisciplinary background. I started off with a degree in computer science. Um, then I went to law school and then I got an MBA. So I kind of have a 360 degree view of accessibility uh, because I understand the technology, I understand the laws, and I understand the business cases. Um, I also, like 30% of people in this field of accessibility, have a disability myself. Um, and it's a congenital disability. There's a picture of me here uh, in my wheelchair uh, shooting on my archery range. I am a Paralympic archer with uh, aspirations to be in Paris in 2024. So I'm uh, watching the Olympics right now uh, with great uh, intensity. Um, I write a lot about accessibility. I was named the Medium 2020 UX Collective Author of the Year. Um, I founded the VMware Accessibility Program. Uh, VMware is a large-ish software company that a lot of people haven't heard of. Uh, currently, we're a subsidiary of Dell, uh, and but we've got about uh, 34,000 employees and about 140 different products that we need to make accessible. I also co-founded the VMware Employee Resource Group for People with Disabilities, which is a very big component of any successful accessibility program at any large software company. And I only use magnification. Um, I've got glaucoma and I also have a deaf daughter. So I have a lot of um, different perspectives on different types of disabilities and what those different groups need um, in order to be successful as customers. So first of all, a few disability statistics. Why should you care about this? Well, 18% of the U.S. population identifies on the census as having one or more disabilities. Um, that's a, actually the largest minority in the U.S. when you look at disabilities underneath one umbrella. Secondly, those people, that 18%, uh, if you apply that globally, has $8 trillion with a T in discretionary spending. So there's a lot of money that can either be made or lost by making sure that your um, products and your services work for that customer base. And finally, 92% of persons with disabilities, PWDs is the abbreviation for that, will head to a more accessible competitor without making a complaint if they can't use your website or your products. Why is that? Well, first of all, people with disabilities are tired of complaining. Uh, we don't see a lot of uh, remediation done when we complain. And so we vote with our pocketbooks. We just say, okay, you're not going to take care of me. I'm going to take my business somewhere else. Um, the other reason is that there is no method in the uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act for filing complaints. You there is litigation and there is being silent. And most people with disabilities have just decided to remain silent. Ninety eight percent of the web is inaccessible. So people with disabilities are really constrained to that two percent that every person with every disability can use. Now, fortunately, 2% of the internet is a large number, but we'd like to see that 2% grow uh, into something more meaningful. 
So when you think about disabilities, you probably think about this group of people. So in the top left corner, uh, we have Owen Simmons, who is known as the Xbox boy. So Owen was featured in the 2018 Super Bowl ads by Microsoft when uh, Microsoft came out with their accessible Xbox player. And so prior to this product being released, Owen couldn't play video games with his friends. And anybody who knows, uh, you know, 10 or 12 year old boys knows that video games are, you know, usually, at least in the U.S., a, a fairly large part of their um, socialization. So with the release of this uh, new Xbox controller that could be operated with just one finger, Owen was able to participate in video gaming equally with his friends instead of just watching um, on the sidelines. Everybody's familiar with Stephen Hawking. His assistive technology was his speech synthesizer and his eye gaze keyboard, and that's how he interacted with software. Stevie Wonder is blind. Marley Matlin uses sign language. And Madison Del Rosario is another uh, Paralympic racer um, in, in her wheelchair. And I actually have that Barbie uh, in, in my office next door. But accessibility is also about hidden disabilities. It's not 100% about the visible disabilities that we just reviewed. 70% of disabilities can't be seen. So all of these individuals on this screen are as disabled as the, the people on the previous screen. Selena Lopez has lupus and has had a kidney transplant. Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things is deaf in one ear. It turns out Bono doesn't wear those red tinted glasses as some type of Hollywood rock star affectation. He wears them because he also has glaucoma. Unfortunately, they don't work for me. Uh, but he actually chose to hide this for more than a decade. And it wasn't until he crashed uh, his cycle in Central Park that he owned up to the fact uh, that he didn't see particularly well. Little Wayne, Elton John, and Prince all had epilepsy. And the reason why the color of Facebook is blue is because that's the only color that Mark Zuckerberg sees well. So you not only have to take care of the individuals with visible disabilities, the ones that you traditionally think of when you think of a disabled person, you also have to take care uh, in your software and in your services of people with hidden disabilities. And then finally, accessibility also is about temporary and situational impairments. So you can have a permanent impairment, such as a limb difference, but you can have a temporary impairment that acts exactly as the same way as the permanent impairment. But, but the idea is that the temporary impairment will resolve itself. So let's say uh, you have rotator cuff uh, problems and you had to have surgery. Uh, the, the same Disability applies. You can't use your right arm. It's just that you can't use it for a shorter period of time. And then lastly, we have situational disabilities where you're holding something. It's a, it's a much shorter period of time, but it acts exactly the same way as the other two. And these are all from the Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit. It's called the Accessibility Persona Spectrum. Um, I really recommend for those of you who use personas in your UX experience uh, that you consider giving some of your personas disabilities and then carrying those disabilities through to the actions to figure out how the persona with the disability will uh, 
change or modify how they do things because of that. So um, accessibility, um, and unfortunately I'm not, uh, I can't play this video, but the, the link is in the top or you can just search for Sadie Video YouTube and Sadie is spelled S-A-D-Y. Um, well, this might work, let's try. People think that having a disability is a barrier. But that's not the way I see it. You can catch up with friends. Ready? You can capture a moment with your family. One face. Small face. Focus long. And you can start the day bright and early. You can take a trip to somewhere new. Concentrate on every word of a story. A bird began to sing. Jack opened his eyes. You can take the long way home. <laughs> or edit a film like this one. Technology is designed for everyone. It lets anyone do what they love, including me. Okay, so the the twist in this, and I've watched this video probably about 250 times at this point, is that Sadie was the video editor uh, at Apple who put together this film. And she used something called assistive technology. In her case, her assistive technology was this was a switch. It was those buttons at the head of her wheelchair that she used uh, to operate the video editor. So there were about... Uh, seven different forms of assistive technology. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, seven different forms of assistive technology uh, portrayed in that video. Okay, so the screen reader that the blind father used to take a picture of his son is assistive technology. Being able to connect your hearing aids to your uh, iPhone in order to filter out background noise is assistive technology. The uh, book, the electronic book that the child with dyslexia was using, uh, that's assistive technology. Assistive technology has really highly fine-tuned settings, and it puts the control in the hands of the user about how that user wants to interact with that software. And so as long as your website and software is following the rules that allow assistive technology to work, you know, everybody with a disability or any combination of disabilities would be able to use your website. So how is accessibility measured? Generally, we use something called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. So uh, that comes from an organization called the World Wide Web Consortium. And the good news is that it's an international standard. 
And every country in the world that has adopted an accessibility law is using this as their standard. Now, some countries use different versions of it, uh, but the base standard is all the same. So version 2.0 came out in 2009. What else came out in 2009? The iPhone. So needless to say, 2.0 did not contain any mobile specific requirements because the iPhone wasn't really a thing yet. They literally came out the same month. So 2.1 came out nine years later in June of 2018, so a little bit over three years ago. And at this point, the cadences were going to do an update about every three years. So 2.2 is coming hopefully November of this year. 3.0 will be coming probably closer to 2024 at this point. Um, But this is the standard that's used everywhere. The courts in the U.S. use it. The European Union uses it. The U.K. adopted it before Brexit. And so the U.K. still continues to use this as their standard. Um, Individual countries like uh, Canada and Australia uh, have adopted this. Um, China uses an earlier version. Uh, uh, which is 1.0, there are three increasing levels of compliance for each one of these versions. So for 2.0, 2.1, 2.2, and 3.0, each of them have three different levels, A, AA, and AAA. AAA is the strictest of the levels, and most organizations do not use AAA. Most regulations uh, and courts have settled on the middle level, double A, as the standard. So the U.S. public sector in July of uh, 2018, right after uh, 2.1 came out, adopted 2.0 double A as its standard. And the European Union and most other countries and internal settlement agreements uh, that are privately negotiated between a company and its users, they mostly use the newer version, which is 2.1. When people ask me, how long do I have to become compliant with the new version? There is no fixed date. Um, We have seen settlement agreements. Uh, We saw our first settlement agreement that referenced 2.1 in November. So it was literally five months after 2.1 came out. Um, But the typical uh, amount of time that people say is realistic to adopt the new standard is 18 months. So if 2.2 comes out in November of 2021, we're telling people that you have until plus or minus May of 2023 uh, to get that implemented. Okay, so now I'm going to go through the uh, eight different uh, warning signs that people with disabilities look at uh, at websites uh, to make their you know, eight to 10 second determination of whether or not they are going to be able to effectively become customers without assistance. So warning sign number one is always the use of something called overlays. And there are a number of different companies that have these overlays. I am not picking on any individual company. Um, I have an objection just overall to the use of, of any overlay. And so the way overlays work, well, first of all, what do they look like? How do you see the warning signs? The warning signs is if you see a blue Vitruvian man anywhere on a website, you know that that website is using an overlay because almost every single one of those overlay companies 
has chosen to use various forms of this symbol to indicate, hey, here's your overlay. Okay. The pro they're also referred to as plugins and widgets occasionally. They are technologies that are aimed at improving website accessibility by using third-party code. Usually it's JavaScript, and it's to improve the front-end website behavior. However, it doesn't actually fix the underlying code. Now, remember those WCAG standards that I just talked about? Only one-third of them can be detected in an automated manner by actually analyzing the code. Two-thirds of them require a human in order to be able uh, to test and determine whether or not something's being done correctly. So if you can't test for it in an automated manner, how can you fix it in an automated manner? And the answer is you can't. So anytime that you see somebody who's using an overlay, there are two-thirds of the WCAG guidelines that they won't even be able to, to deal with any problems that may come up with the, with the website. But the big problem with uh, overlays is that when you don't have an overlay, so this is the, the normal no overlay, you've got your user, you've got your assistive technology, and you've got your destination. The user communicates through the assistive technology to get to the destination, and the destination round trips the data back to the user, again, going through this assistive technology. So you see this assistive technology cycle where the user is controlling the assistive technology. Okay. The problem with overlays is you still have that same cycle, but you now have an overlay that's been introduced. And the destination has to communicate with the overlay, and the overlay communicates back to the destination. Well, first of all, that creates an extra layer of issues if, there's, if the overlay site gets hacked, because remember, that's a third-party site, or if the overlay site is having performance issues, that's going to reflect on the destination product behavior. But more importantly, the overlay communicates directly back to the user, and the user is only allowed to communicate through the overlay. So that takes the user's assistive technology completely out of the equation. And that is really difficult for users. So imagine you're a blind user. You have your screen reader like really tightly configured to exactly how you want to interact with computers. You know, your speech rate is set at 325%. You get your response through Braille, whatever customizations you've made to get it to work. And then you go to some new website that you've never been to before. And you go, the website says, hey, we've got an overlay. Guess what? That screen reader that you've learned how to use so, so carefully and so well, you don't get to use that anymore. Here, we're going to give you this incomplete set of options and you need to use this instead. Now, that creates an immediate barrier uh, to the users in terms of how they interact with that website. And in fact, many users install scripts so that if they get to a site and, and there's an overlay, they disable the overlay from even working at all so that they can continue to use their own assistive technology. So that's uh, warning sign number one. Okay, Warning sign number two is poor color choices. So the first content 
contrast you can get. It's black on white. Contrast is measured in terms of a, what's called a luminosity ratio. So a color on itself has a ratio of one. Black on white is 21. And everything else is somewhere in between the two. In the example on the right, you can see something that's got a color ratio of about 1.35 to 1. I'm told there's some yellow on that screen. I actually can't see it because of my glaucoma. I can see a little bit of blue and a little bit of green, but it's very difficult to read. And it's just a sign that not too much attention had been paid to accessibility on this particular website because color it, from the technology perspective is actually the easiest thing to fix. So uh, you don't have to memorize the math or the luminosity ratios or anything. There are some great tools out there. Um, there's plugins for design tools uh, such as Stark, which will um, integrate into Figma and um, Adobe and other uh, design tools that you may be using, or you can use an independent tool for color analysis. The one I like uh, comes from a company called the Passiello Group, and both of those are free. And um, you just sample, uh, you use an eyedropper, you sample the foreground color, you sample the background color, and it just gives you a thumbs up or thumbs down about whether or not the ratio is sufficient. Um, and it does the math behind the scenes for you, which is nice. Okay. Another problem where you can make poor color choices is if you do something that doesn't reflect well for people who are colorblind. 4.25% of the general population is colorblind. And if you're looking at something like football or tech, where the audience is 80% male, that number increases to six and a half percent. Six and a half percent of your audience, statistically speaking, will be colorblind. So this is a, a famous meme uh, from a from a football game that happened about five years ago, where the NFL was trying to sell more jerseys, and so they changed up the colors from the teams who are playing. And on the left hand side, you have one team in green uniforms and one team in red uniforms. On the right hand side, you have a simulation of what those uniforms look like to somebody who's colorblind. And the answer is they can't tell the teams apart uh, because red and green look the same to them. And they look uh, like this really horrible shade of khaki. So uh, make sure that you don't use red and green together is rule number one for colorblindness. Rule number two is make sure you use something above and beyond the color to indicate things. Now you can see we on the right hand side, we can see a little bit of a helmet. And so the helmet helps identify the team, but the other people, you can't really see the helmets at all. And so uh, that that's not really sufficient for this. Uh, you know, maybe more visible names on the jerseys or something like that might help. And then the other thing is you don't want to use red and green in conjunction with browns or dark colors, because going back to the contrast for warning sign, you know, 2A, uh, that's uh, not going to present enough contrast for somebody who's colorblind to be able to make the determination or be able to pick up the text. So where I see this most often is you'll see uh, black text on a green background or red text on a green background. There was a company that just IPO'd literally this week named Hippo. 
And they had 50 foot signs in um, Times Square announcing, um, you know, how great they were and that they uh, that their stock was now available on the stock exchange. But it was all green on black. So nobody who was colorblind would be able to do anything uh, with those signs. Okay, so warning sign number three is if you've got magnification problems. So um, anytime that you see uh, horizontal scroll bars, that that is a problem because the uh, people uh, who need to expand things don't always see the horizontal scroll bars and they don't always know that there's other stuff available on the side. So all websites need to be designed to be responsive, whether or not you intend to support mobile because magnification uses responsive breakpoints in order to uh, reorient and reflow the, the text. So, because this text should be wrapping, this text should not be cut off on the right-hand side. So this is a screenshot uh, of something that was deliberately designed to highlight the problems that are presented uh, when you try to magnify something that's not responsive. Uh, five times as many people use magnification as who are blind. Uh, so we're talking about probably one and a half to 2% of the population uh, relies on magnification. If you don't design your site to be responsive, they will be turned off and they will uh, go work somewhere else because it's very difficult for somebody who relies on magnification to work with a non-responsive site. So there's another aspect to magnification issues, which is embedding text in images. When you embed text in an image, it can get blurry, okay? And it does something called pixelating. And that's because the text is no longer text. The text, once it's been embedded in, in an image, is just pixels in the image. And when the person who magnifies it uh, does their magnification, instead of getting the nice, crisp, clean font on the right-hand side for the text, you get the blurry uh, font that's on the left-hand side of this image. And that, um, I can guarantee you, uh, as somebody with glaucoma who uses magnification all the time, uh, you pretty much are guaranteed to have a headache uh, at the end of an hour after uh, trying to read the text that's all completely blurry. So don't embed text in images. That's, that's how you avoid this problem. Okay, warning sign number four is lack of quality captions. Now, the captions are getting better. Auto captioning is improving. You can see that I have auto captioning turned on in my PowerPoint slides, and the accuracy rate is actually pretty good, partly because I'm a native English speaker, partly because I've learned how to separate my words carefully when I'm presenting so that the auto captioning knows when one word stops and when the next word begins. Now, this screenshot is of my friend Meryl, and Meryl has two accents. Uh, she is Welsh, um, but she also is deaf, and people who are deaf who speak uh, have a very nasal tone uh, to their voices, and auto captions do not uh, translate those very well. So uh, Meryl, uh, is one of the people, I don't know that she coined the term autocraptions, but um, she definitely uh, is, is most known for using it. So uh, the left-hand side, she has something that she wrote the captions herself. And the right-hand side is uh, the YouTube captioning engine, K 
captioning Meryl's voice. Um, YouTube is probably the lowest quality of the captioning engines. Um, I don't believe they've moved over to the Google uh, Meets auto captioning engine yet. That one is actually fairly good. So Google Meets comes with captioning. PowerPoint comes with captioning. Teams comes with captioning. If you're using Zoom, you have to integrate an auto captioning engine. Um, and the best auto captioning engines are the ones where you can add to the dictionary. So if there are terms that you're using, especially scientific terms, medical terms, uh, acronyms, you can add to the dictionary so it will pick up those terms and caption them correctly instead of trying to guess uh, what it is and, and coming up with this unintelligible interpretation. Okay, no, warning sign number five is text alternatives. So in this slide, I have a picture of a Jack Russell Terrier with sunglasses on who's sitting in a hammock on a beach. It's a very cute picture. So text alternatives are what those screen readers that people who are blind tell the screen reader user what's in the picture when the picture comes up. So what is the correct text alternative for this picture? It all depends on the context. It could be dog on beach. It could be dog wearing sunglasses on beach. It could be Jack Russell Terrier wearing sunglasses in hammock on beach. It all depends on the context. So if you're doing, if this article is about sunglasses, then the fact that the dog is wearing sunglasses is actually relevant. Uh, and so you would make sure to include su uh, sunglasses. If the dog was about how Jack Russell Terriers are uh, trainable, then you would want to focus on the dog breed. So it depends about, so what all text is correct depends on what the article is about. And if the, if the picture is just there to be cute or funny, then you flag it as decorative. And when you flag an image as decorative, then you're telling the screen reader user, move along, this image doesn't matter. So why do you need to do that? It takes about three to five times as long for somebody who uses a screen reader to get through a web page as it does for somebody who's reading visually. So any corners that you can cut to make that experience faster is going to benefit the screen reader user immensely. It's going to get them closer to an equal experience. So actually analyzing every image on your page and saying, does a blind person need to know what's in this image? And if not, uh, mark it as decorative, you're actually significantly improving the experience for individuals who are blind. And trust me, they will notice that. So you want to use the shortest amount of text possible to pay to convey the appropriate level of image for the context of the text around it. And short can include nothing, but you need to make that decision deliberately. Okay, accessibility warning sign number six is for text that's not dyslexia friendly. So you can see with these arrows, these arrows, are, we have a, a chunk of text that's right justified, and that has created something that we call rivers of white space. Rivers of white space make it very difficult for people with dyslexia to uh, decode or read the text. They have difficulty figuring out where to pick up after that river that chunk of white space has happened. And sometimes they will jump lines. They will move to the next line or they'll move back up to the first line. And it makes it very difficult for them to comprehend the uh, paragraph. 
So do not uh, write justify your text pretty much ever. There's no reason to ever do it because all it does is it creates issues for people and it doesn't really add much benefit at all. And also people who have dyslexia who are more advanced assistive technology users will actually create custom spacing templates. So they'll say, okay, I want to see all my texts double spaced or I want to see a uniform spacing between letters. And uh, if your website doesn't honor those selections um, or, you know, makes the text all jumbled, if those selections are applied, that's a WCAG violation. And you've just put off five to seven percent of your audience who has dyslexia. Okay, accessibility warning sign number seven. And remember, all of these things by somebody with a disability can be picked up literally in one second. Is no skip link or no focus indicators. So I've got three uh, horizontal nav bar uh, screenshots here in this slide. The first one is one where there's no skip link and there's no uh, keyboard focus indicator. You cannot tell where you are in this nav bar. If you hit the return key, you don't know what you're activating. On the second one, you can see we have a blue box in the top left that says skip to main content. That is what a skip link is. It's also sometimes referred to as a bypass block and it will uh, allow a keyboard user and most people who use assistive technology do not use mice. They largely use the keyboard. It will allow them to bypass all that horizontal navigation so I don't have to sit there and hit the tab button 12 times. It will jump straight into the main content. Remember, again, speeding up the experience for somebody who's using assistive technology. And then we have uh, in the third block, uh, a focus indicator. So the focus indicator is that big black box that's around the about us uh, component uh, link. I think that's a link. And if I know if I hit the return key here, it's gonna take me to the about us page. Okay, so note the skip link, People hit the tab button as soon as the page loads. If there's no skip link, they know that the chances are that the page is going to be inaccessible because that's one of the most basic uh, requirements uh, and it's the easiest one to, to detect. For somebody who's, who's sighted or partially sighted, who needs those keyboard focus indicators, you hit the tab button a couple of times. If you don't see where you are, chances are the entire page is inaccessible. Okay, keyboard operation. So as I alluded to in the previous uh, slide, you have to operate from the keyboard. Everything has to be reachable from the keyboard. Or uh, in the case of a mobile uh, device, everything has to be reachable without having to touch the screen. You can't assume that your users can use mice. You can't assume that your users can even use their hands. And so accessibility is about making sure that you're accepting input from the keyboard, which is how most assistive technology uses uh, keyboard simulation. So for example, Stephen Hawking, he used an eye gaze keyboard. He didn't use a real keyboard. He had an electronic keyboard that he looked at through those glasses that he wore. And if he stared at a character for three seconds, it simulated a key press behind the scenes. If that uh, software that he was using required mouse interaction, he wouldn't have been able to interact with it. So you can't have hover-only behavior. You can't have touch-only behavior. 
You can't have swipe only behavior. So on mobile, swipe left to delete is really common. You have to have a keyboard equivalent for that. Uh, same thing for the hover behavior. Um, you can't have jiggle the device behavior. So uh, if, you, if you're having some contest and you're trying to get people to interact and you say, oh, just shake your phone and your prize will come up, you have to have a keyboard equivalent for that so that somebody who can't jiggle the phone can also have an access uh, to, your, to your contest. Okay, you can't have keyboard traps. If you can get into something with your keyboard, you have to be able to get out of something uh, with your keyboard. Um, and you're only allowed to use one function key. So if you're providing uh, keyboard shortcuts, for example, let's say for swipe only, you're saying, hey, use control J to delete that object. That's fine because you're not reusing something common like control C or control X. And it's okay because you only are using one control key. But if you say you need to press function alt shift, you know, for asterisk in order to get a keyboard shortcut to work, um, that's what we call keyboard twister because it's making somebody do a whole bunch of different things at the same time. And that's really hard to simulate on alternative keyboards. And so that is disallowed under the WCAG guidelines. And then finally, as we mentioned earlier, keyboard focus indicators always have to be visible and you always have to have good contrast for those. Okay, for bonus points, you wanna make sure that status changes get announced to screen reader users, okay? So let's say I'm hungry and I'm ordering some groceries and I want some Oreo yogurt, okay? I put the Oreo yogurt in my shopping cart. Great, that happened, but all kinds of other things changed elsewhere as a result of putting those Oreos in my shopping cart, okay? The shopping cart number increased from zero to one. The shopping cart subtotal increased from zero to $3.29. The amount that I needed to spend to get my personal shopping services for free dropped from $100 to $96.71. So all of these changes have to be announced to screen reader users. Um, and we do that through a tool called ARIA, A-R-I-A. And ARIA allows you to provide additional information to screen reader users that aren't, isn't necessarily visible on the screen. And so this takes more than eight seconds. Uh, at this point, we're already up to eight seconds. This would be the next thing that somebody who is blind would check for uh, to see if they're getting all of the status change announcements, what, especially in a retail setting when they're putting something in a shopping cart. So um, just to wrap things up, and then um, I will uh, look and see what kinds of questions we've gotten. Accessibility is not just about the accessibility team. Okay, everybody in the company, in the organization, needs to participate in producing an accessible product. Your communications, your emails to your customers, your surveys, however you're interacting with them, those need to be accessible. In order to do that, your staff all needs knowledge and skills. They have to be trained on how to do things accessibility accessibly. Your customer support team has to understand how to support people who are using assistive technology, how to take relay calls from somebody who's deaf. 
your technology cycle has to have accessibility integrated in it from beginning to end, from product idea to design to development to QA to release, the entire development life cycle has to be accessible. So how do you do this? Well, your personnel have to understand stuff about accessibility. You either have to recruit people who know about accessibility, you have to train them to know about accessibility, or the best way to go about doing it is you need to hire people with disabilities who are in the room talking about accessibility when the accessibility team isn't there. We have a fairly large accessibility team at VMware. Uh, we are growing to uh, almost 20 at this point, but VMware has 34,000 employees. We need people talking about accessibility when the 20 people from the accessibility team aren't in the room. And so hiring people with disabilities is how you do that. If you're going to hire people with disabilities, you need to make sure that you're procuring accessible software and accessible solutions for those people. And then finally, you have to have a culture uh, that supports diversity. Um, it's the best way to go about doing that is if you have people at the C-suite level and their direct reports asking questions about accessibility, going to disability ERG meetings, giving out diversity awards, bonusing people. Um, for example, Apple, uh, for their directors and above, 10% of their bonus is based on how well they do it on accessibility. Um, disabled customer experience is a hashtag. Um, and so it is stories about a person with a disability who's a customer who's had either a really good or a really bad experience when the experience is influenced by their disability. Uh, trust me, people with disabilities talk amongst themselves a lot. And so if somebody has a really good experience or a bad experience, they will frequently share it on a Facebook group or a LinkedIn uh, portfolio, and a lot of people will hear about it. So just to recap before I take questions, you, accessibility is about choices. You could choose to be accessible or you can, you know, through uh, indifference, choose not to be accessible. Either way, it's a choice. Hopefully through this um, presentation, I have influenced you uh, to investigate accessibility and make a choice in the positive. You definitely want to be proactive. If you wait until you get customer complaints, that involves a lot of rework and um, you don't, that's not the cheapest or easiest way to do it. If you make something accessible from the beginning, if it's included as part of your MVP for your initial release, it's going to be much easier and cheaper to get that integrated and to have an accessible end product. Needs to be baked into your entire organization. It's not just about your development teams or your vendor subcontracts. It's about communication, support, procurement, and just about every organization at your, sorry, just about every department in your organization. And you can't assume because you haven't had a customer complaint that you don't have a problem. You have no many idea, no idea how many customers may have walked away from your website without complaining just because they they, they're tired of complaining and seeing nothing happen, and they're just voting with their pocketbook and moving on. You know, and finally, it doesn't matter what the question is. Make it accessible is always the right answer. So uh, resources, I've, I have a, the first five chapters of my book on accessibility are at accessibility.uxdesign.cc. 
Um, I have an extensive blog in two locations. The blogs are identical. The only difference is one is on Medium. So if you have a Medium subscription, great, you can read it there. If you don't have a Medium subscription or if you use assistive technology, it's replicated in an accessible version on sherryburnhaber.com, no hyphen, uh, because uh, Medium itself is not accessible. And then I have uh, a couple of links here to the accessibility standards and the International Association of Accessibility Professionals, where you can get all kinds of training and resources to learn more in depth about accessibility. Do we have any questions, Diane? Oh my gosh. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Sherry, for such an in-depth overview of accessibility. Um, just given the nature in the chat or the, the conversations that are happening in chat, um, this was very, very well received and right on time as usual. Um, so thank you for, for giving us that overview. There were definitely a few questions, and I'm sure a few will trickle in. We have about 10 minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Feel free to be as expansive as you would like, Sherry, um, because the, the audience is clamoring for and they want they are like living on your words. Um, so the first question that came I really up was, appreciate that. And if I can't get to them all, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. I think they will. I like just based on all the comments. I think they will. And there's a lot for you to go through following this. Um, OK, OK, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The first one is um, any enterprise or consumer product designers who work with accessibility uh, regularly. I think that this person was asking, I'm actually not sure if they were asking, I think they're asking you, but they might have also been asking the audience and they didn't get uh, a response to that. So I will repeat it. Are there any enterprise or consumer product designers who work with accessibility regularly? Maybe that you know, maybe you could share a few of them. Sure. So um, there are a couple of uh, design organizations that I, that I work with that do accessible design. Uh, there is a group called Huge um, who did accessible design at a previous job uh, that I worked at. Uh, there is a great agency in Los Angeles called Diamond L.A., Everything that they do is about accessibility. And the um, senior partner there is actually the person who co-founded Global Accessibility Awareness Day, Joe Devon. So uh, he's a great resource um, for that. The people who do accessibility well are um, honestly some of the people who've been sued in the past and who've gotten religion after settling that lawsuit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Bank of America, Chase, United Airlines, um, McDonald's. So you look at those um, websites and uh, they, they've not only made them accessible, they've kept it accessible, uh, which is the hardest thing to do. It's, it's actually easier to make something accessible than to keep it accessible. To make it accessible, you only need the, the tech nerds in the room to make it accessible. To keep it accessible, you have to make changes to the entire organization, just like I outlined when I talked about all the different things in an organization that supports accessibility. So uh, you can look at the designers from those companies, uh, Apple, Microsoft, and Google, and Amazon, in terms of the enterprise level, all do a really good job at accessibility, um, as does Oracle. So um, any agencies that they use or employees that come for those environments will be um, well uh, versed in accessibility. 
And then another thing to look at is that accessibility is really part of inclusive design and universal design. It's not specifically called out, but universal design is inherently about making things work for everybody, which includes people with disabilities. So if you see anybody who's certified in those areas, they're also going to be uh, quite familiar with how to make things accessible. Okay. And on those lines, someone asked, um, what are your go-to resources for continued education around accessibility best practices? Sure. So, um, you know, W3C has some resources um, on its website uh, for accessibility. Um, I love Smashing Magazine. Smashing Magazine, uh, for example, they just released a soup to nuts article on how to build accessible dialogue boxes. Uh, which is literally written like a cookbook. And that's the thing that I like best um, about Smashing Magazine and how they um, write their articles. Um, DQ has, uh, that's D-E-Q-U-E. They're one of the big accessibility consultancies. They have training available that will provide you with the information that you need in order to pass the professional certification exams from the IAAP. So that's another place that you can get really inexpensive uh, training. Uh, it's, uh, I think, $35 uh, for the class, and it's free if you have a disability. Uh, so they have, uh, you know, free scholarships available. Okay, awesome. All right, that was very, very helpful, um, as all of it is, actually. I have another question, and um, the question is, do you have any insight on how accessibility design works in physical installations? exhibits in museums or interactive installations um, at a brand store like Lego. Um, they also, this person also asked, and, and let me know if you want to answer that first before answering this next question, which is, um, is there a study or have there been rising voices around physical experiences not being accessible enough? Yeah, so there have been. Um, it, it has been an issue. Um, I actually recently participated in the Palo Alto Junior Museum and Zoo redesign, where we made sure that the um, exhibits and the things that the children could interact with were accessible to anybody with any level of disability. So uh, the, the important thing is that if you have an app that's supporting the exhibits, where people can rent headphones or what have you, you need to make sure that that app is accessible. Um, you need to make sure uh, that if you don't have an app, uh, that you've got Braille uh, that's tactile available uh, to the, um, the people who are going to the exhibit uh, that, so that the person can read, okay, what is it that this exhibit is saying? You have to keep in mind, right, that the People with disabilities who are at, I'm just going to use the museum for an example, the, it, it might be targeted to them, they might be the intended audience, or they might be accompanying somebody who's uh, at the attended audience. Um, so having somebody who can do um, sign language as a docent, if the docents are taking people around to look at the exhibits is helpful as well. Okay. Um... All right, we have, let me just make sure. I can, there's so many comments I'm wait, waiting through um, them for questions, but um, let me just make sure. So Legos come out with some really cool stuff. I know the person mentioned Legos in their, um, mm -hmm. in the second part of the question. question. So they have actually, they actually have Legos that teach Braille now. 
so that the little Lego bumps represent the six braille cells uh, to, to teach children or adults who've lost their vision later in life how, how to use braille. Um, and the other thing that I really like is that Lego has come out with more inclusive uh, sets so you can have uh, like little Lego people sitting in wheelchairs or little Lego people with white canes and a service dog uh, with them. So Lego's done a really good job uh, in general at inclusion. Yes, they have. And speaking on the heels of that, personally, and you mentioned this also earlier, that you have the Barbie with the wheelchair. Um, yeah. And I have the Barbie with a wheelchair. I'm not in a wheelchair, but I found that I've I found that they, over the past couple of years, have become even more inclusive um, with their with their dolls. And so some have vitiligo, some have our limb different. And so, and I yeah. purchased all of them just because I'm just excited to see them out in the market. Um, and also, so when I'm engaging with other individuals, I can say, you know, this is like you said, an example of of brands um, that are that embracing inclusivity because. Everybody wants to see themselves represented and in, in especially in the toy market uh, everywhere, but in the toy market. Um, exactly. right. I mean, I know when I was a kid, there were no bar- Barbies in wheelchairs. No. So I didn't have a Barbie because there was no Barbie that reflected me. And then um, 30, year, 30 years ago, when my two older children were born and they're half Chinese, there were no Barbies that reflected mm-hmm. their ethnic identity. And now you can get pretty much uh, any, any type of uh, toy. Uh, with adaptive technology or with uh, with different in different ethnicity, different skin tones. Yeah, it only took it only took what twenty years for that to happen. But we're showing exactly. there's it takes time. It takes time. So on the lines of that, though, actually, um, how can or what tips would you give the average designer or creative that's in this space here that's joining joining this conference that isn't at the C suite level that isn't maybe a leader, how, what tips can you give them to help bring in more inclusive practices to their workplace? Because I think that that's sometimes a challenge for those who are not managers and who aren't sitting in C-suite. Okay. So first of all, never discount the fact that you're not a leader. Leaders aren't about titles. Okay. Leaders are about actions. Mm -hmm. So you can be an accessibility or an inclusion leader, even though you don't have, you you know, you might be the lowest rung of contributors. So, uh, you know, share articles uh, on Slack uh, or whatever communications tools uh, that your company uses internally that you run across. Uh, Go to meetups, uh, get your coworkers uh, to try to attend accessibility meetups. Uh, Talk about different conferences that have accessibility tracks. It's starting to be more and more common for design conferences to have an accessibility track. Okay, Grace Hopper has an accessibility track. Uh, The user experience conference has an accessibility track. So, uh, you know, that was my goal for this year was actually to not talk at as many accessibility conferences, but to talk more at conferences like this where people might not have been exposed to accessibility concepts. Um, and, and like uh, you said, it's just, it's exploding, um, especially as the, the litigation over inaccessibility is not slowing down. And I didn't get too into that too much, but there were 3,500 lawsuits in the U.S. alone last year over accessibility. And we're on track for well over 4,000 this year. So people aren't getting the message 
And because they're not getting the message, they're getting sued. Uh, Domino's, for example, which has been involved in the biggest uh, litigation so far, could have spent $38,000, that was their own estimate, to make their um, website and their app accessible. And instead, they've spent a million and a half dollars defending the fact that they aren't accessible in court. Okay, there's there's no question uh, that the trade-off uh, is 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 very obvious uh, in that it costs much much more to defend an accessibility lawsuit than it does to make something accessible in the first place. Absolutely, and I know that they're kicking themselves um, because that they did not do. Well, I don't know that they're kicking themselves. Honestly, they're still oh. fighting it. I mean, the most recent decision came. You know, this case has been going on for five years now, and it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. And as far as I know, they're still fighting it, even wow. though every decision pretty much has gone against them. That's pretty brazen. Well, on that note, um, how many countries have have passed accessibility laws? Uh, I think at this point, 11, um, you know, 36, if you count each EU country separately. Um, but, uh, the European accessibility act, uh, uh, we, we have an accessibility act in the EU right now that just affects the, um, the governments. And then that's going to be broadened in 2025 to cover everything. And some countries are actually passing laws. Germany passed this. Uh, for example, that said that the German government will be able to recall anything that's inaccessible. So uh, they're, they're getting very, very, very serious about ramping up the accessibility constraints. Uh, this is the their first accessibility law came out in, I want to say 2017. Um, and they're just basically ramping it up to cover everything uh, over an eight year period of time. So we're in the chunk right now that you can still get it right. Uh, but come 2025, some of those doors are going to be slammed uh, against uh, companies that aren't accessible. All right. So that is a word to the wise to everybody, anybody, everybody that's in this at this conference who could do better. Now's your time. Now's your time to do better. You've just met an, ex an expert in the area and the field who is open to uh, having continued conversation. You can reach her on LinkedIn with additional questions. Um, you can look at and. Sherry, correct me if I'm wrong, they can go to your blog to also continue to follow you and to get additional insights as it relates to this discipline or to this area, which again is also considered universal design. So it means it benefits everybody in this room, invisible or who has visible disabilities or invisibility, invisible disabilities. Um, so where else, what else can they learn from you, Sherry? Where else? We mentioned LinkedIn, we mentioned your blog. Is there anywhere else in closing that they should look out for you? and for accessibility content? Um, I, would, I would follow IAAP uh, and uh, on LinkedIn, there's a number of groups uh, that uh, work on accessibility in the US, the federal government laws called section 508. So anytime you see something that has section 508 uh, as part of the name, that's about accessibility also, just in very specifically in the federal government context. All right. Okay. Well, thank you, Sherry. We are out of time, but thank you so much for, again, for delivering this, um, delivering such a great presentation that was educational, useful, and hopefully gave people lots of food for thought um, going forward as they continue as designers. So, I appreciate you. the invite. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye.
And that is it for Unconference. Please subscribe to Unconference wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss a single second. And give us a five-star rating and review. You can also give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Unconference Podcast. You can also follow me individually on Instagram and Twitter at Tim Hikes. Well, it's Timothy Hikes. And follow Design Plus Diversity, the movement, at designplusdiversity.com. That's designplusplusdiversity.com. Diversity.com.